Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today's guest, Mike Malatesta, he has a podcast called How'd It Happen? My dad said it actually shouldn't have happened. When the FBI comes knocking, you keep your mouth shut and you get a lawyer. Mike Malatesta, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am well. How are you? Good. Glad we were finally able to get this together. Me too. How'd it happen? We'll find out how it happened, I guess. Well, we did connect through our shared interest of Stephen M.R. Covey and yes. talking about the subject of trust. It's true. We did. Yes. Trust Inspire. Can't remember the name of his. Trust and Inspire. Trust I and actually inspire. have it right in front of me. Okay. Yes. I did listen to your episode with him. That was good. Thank you. I listened to yours too. It's fun to connect with people who have interviewed the same guest, I find. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting the different paths that people, you know, take that I, you know, some that interests me. Like I wouldn't thought wouldn't have thought to go in some of the to some of the places you went. Maybe the same was true, you know, for you. And I find it what I love about it is guests are willing to go where usually they're willing to go wherever you want to take them, at least good ones. Yes. Have you had any that say no? I've never had anyone say no. I have had people who they wouldn't go where I exactly where I wanted was hoping they would go, you know, and I try a couple of times and then uh, just move on. I'm, I don't want someone to do something they don't want to do, but sometimes I do think it would be interesting. <laughs> it rarely happens though, Rena. I've found that most people go where you want them to go. Yeah, have I have you found, found that it? too. Yeah, yeah, okay. For the most part, sometimes people will even let you know beforehand if there's something that they don't want to talk about. But uh, if they tell you beforehand that they don't really want to talk about it, I might try anyway, because <laughs> okay. then you know it's something good. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you ask them, or they just bring it up? Because I never ask anybody that. I don't usually ask either because. Okay. It's better to try and ask for forgiveness, I find, which I is a nice little segue into kind of what I would like to talk to you about. Okay. You know, you talked about trust with Stephen Covey, and I know part of the reason why you started your podcast, How Did Happen, was to own up to mistakes and to become more confident in talking about parts of your story that you might not have shared in yeah. the beginning. Can oh, you talk yeah, to sure. me a little bit about that process? Yeah. I mean, I, for most of my life, and I'd say even today, I'm, you know, I'm a private person. I'm not looking to be the person on display. Uh, for example, I, I like to be the leader, but I like to lead from sort of the middle, I guess. For a long time, I just would avoid, I would avoid 
anything that I didn't think was, I don't want to say reflected poorly on me because that's probably not exactly true, but I, I wanted to keep up appearances. How's that? And I just wanted to be that sort of person that, you know, comes prepared to work or whatever the project needs, but you know, that's sort of it. I mean, if you ask me a question about my personal life or something, I'd be happy to talk to you about it, but I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to, and I was a little embarrassed about, you know, putting myself out there sometimes, especially in strange or new situations where I didn't feel like I had, and this is going to sound bad, but control of the situation. And I might be, I might not feel worthy to be there, or I might not feel like I've got the appropriate input to be seen as, you know, valuable to the situation or whatever. So that's just how I lived my life for a long time. And then when I started doing the podcast, I, I did it really just selfishly out of curiosity and the more I got curious about people and the more they were willing to share with me, it just seemed natural to share more of me with them, right? That's sort of like the quid pro quo, I guess, of the situation. And, and ultimately that gave me the confidence, I guess, to, to write my book, which is called Ownership, and really explore some things that I never would have done, you know, prior to starting the podcast, or, or, or I certainly don't think I would have. Tell me what you explored that you don't think you would have. Well, there were a lot of things. I mean, I, you know, entrepreneurism or being a leader or running a business is it's full of challenges. <laughs> full of challenges. It's full of rewards too, but it's also full of challenges. And, and a lot of those challenges get at you. They get inside of you and they eat away at you and you don't know how to deal with them. You, you have to appear like you know how to deal with them and you have to get up every day, keep dealing with them. But sometimes the weight just gets a little heavy. You don't know what to do with it. So in my exploration, I, I, you know, I just talked about how, or I explored, I guess, how, you know, at some point, I had just had this mentality that I could do everything by myself and there was no issue, problem, challenge that I couldn't figure out. You know, there's probably a lot of people who think like that. And the thing about it was that it worked for me for, for years, or at least I convinced myself that it was working for me. I was, you know, let's just get through it. I grit through it. I'll, I'll learn my way around it. I'll work harder than anybody else. I'll do what's necessary, whatever is necessary, I would do. And then after my partner passed away in 2003, we'd about, we'd been in business for about 10 years and him, he was just sort of my best buddy, my you know, the person who really believed in me, I mean, Butch believed in me, like nobody else believed in me, you know, when he passed away, just, you know, the weight of losing him, the impact on the business and, and all these other collective things that had been building up just took me to a place where I just, I call it the valley of uncertainty in the book, but it's really just a place where I just fell. I could no longer work my way out of things on my own. That's one example. And I mean, another example is I way early in my career, I was working for a really big company, my first job out of college. And I, I was doing, I thought I was doing really good. I was, I was moving around, I was getting promoted. And we, as a collective group in one of the businesses that I worked in, we weren't doing everything by the book. We were doing things by our book. We were writing the book. And so we could justify what we were doing as being, we always called it gray areas. We're operating in gray areas. And everybody's doing it. And, you know, all the things you hear about when, you know, whether it's finance or Wall Street or whatever, you know, when something sort of happens that gets exposed, you, you know, there's all kinds of justification from the people who were doing it as to why it was not as bad as it was. And so in this instance, we were in, a, in, a, in the waste business and we were doctoring samples. We were lying about where things came from. We were basically, we were doing little things 
over and over again that gave us an advantage, either a cost advantage or a, uh, usually a cost advantage. And we sort of thought that we were just the smartest people in the room, you know, just the smartest people in the room. I got fired from, not from that position, but from my next position, I got fired. That was in 1992. And that's when I started my first business arena. And I had no idea when I got fired, what I knew why kind of, you know, it was kind of explained to me and I knew it related to what we had been doing before, but I didn't really think, I didn't think anything would ever come of it. I just had to figure out my life from there. And ultimately six months later or so started, started the business and, you know, I was just going along fine and, you know, doing all the things you need to do to start a business. And that whole memory of what, you know, working there and all was, you know, fading. And then, then one Sunday I got a call from a guy who identified himself as an FBI agent. And he wanted to talk to me about this, my experience with this company during this time period. And so that just started a, a really, you know, horrible journey that was, you know, a lot of years and ultimately ended up in, in me and, and a bunch of my former colleagues getting you know, charged and getting convicted and getting sentenced. And all of this, all the while I'm trying to, you know, run this business where nobody knows about any of this because it happened, you know, thousands thousand miles away. And it was sort of, you know, I guess fortunate for me at the time that the internet was like not really a thing. So I was just keeping that all private, hidden stuff down while I was also trying to, you know, make this company work. So it was, it was very, I'm not asking for pity. It was challenging, but I mean, it was just another thing that I had brought upon myself and had to try to figure out how to get past, but it was, it made it harder. Let's put it this way. Like it does for everybody who's in that type of situation. It makes it harder. So what that was something. charged with? Well, we were charged with Clean Water Act violation and we were charged with, well, there was a bunch of things first and I'm trying to remember what it was whittled down to because that, that's typical. They try to, you know, that in a situation like that, they throw everything they can. I think it was aiding and abetting, but that was so that, and that was all connected to paying a bill through the U.S. mail that you knew was not correct, you know, because you did the things that I, I talked about earlier. And so that's, that's where I ended up. I'm also curious, like, where were you when you got that phone call? What was going through your mind? Yeah, I was at home. It was a Sunday night. Uh, we were watching 60 Minutes. And I was just sort of chilling, you know, getting ready for, for work the next day. And, you know, our phone was on the wall still at that time. And, you know, it rang. So I picked it up and, you know, he said, hey, you know, my name is Larry Owens. I'm an FBI agent. I'm investigating yada, yada. And I'd like you to come talk to me in, in my office, which was far away. And, and I had no idea what to do with that. At first, I thought it was a joke. Like I thought maybe... It was a friend of mine or something who was just messing with me. And so the next day he said I could contact the lawyer and call him back. So that's how that call ended. But the next day I called the number because that he left me because I thought, well, maybe I'll call the number just to see, you know, and they answered the phone FBI. And so I hung up <laughs> and I was like, okay, so maybe this isn't a friend of mine who's messing with me. And yeah, that went from there. Oh my God. How did your family react? Well, for as long as I could, I didn't tell anybody. So, I mean, I mean, I had to tell my wife, but I only told her like little parts, you know, because I thought just like I had thought all along, I thought, well, this is a misunderstanding. Mm. This is a, this is a mistake. I'm going to go talk to these people. They're going to see that, you know, I've got nothing to hide. I'll tell them everything they want to know. And they're going to apologize for the inconvenience, <laughs> just, you know, call it a day. But that's not, that's not exactly how, how it happened. Um, that would have been nice. <laughs> 
Yeah, it would have been nice. Yeah. And I think, I, I don't know, I imagine a lot of people in that who find themselves in that situation probably hope the same thing. It's kind of a delusional hope, but you know, you hope the same thing and I'll do, this is just a mistake. You know, it's gotta be a mistake. It wasn't, it wasn't a mistake, but so I just, I mean, I told my dad a little bit later, I don't exactly remember when, but this went on for years, like four oh. years or so. And like I said, it wasn't like a big news story or anything. And so I didn't really feel pressured to have to say anything until, you know, it became formal. And then, you know, I had to address it in my business. I had to address it in my, in my personal life. And then what did that look like? It was uncomfortable. I got to, I told you at the beginning, I'm a very private person. I certainly, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was, I was a little bit defiant, I suppose, too, because I still felt like, you know, we were getting a little screwed, even though we weren't, but you know, it's just natural to feel that way. And so, yeah, it wasn't pleasant. And, and like I said, it was, it went on for a really long time. So there'd be these long periods of time where nothing would happen. And you'd sort of, I mean, it sounds weird, but you'd sort of start to forget about it a little bit. And then, and then it pops up and you'd be like, damn it. <laughs> when is this thing going to be over? So that's what it felt like. Isn't there like jokes that the mafia runs waste management? Well, I don't know if those are jokes. I mean, at some point, they I'm sure that they had a, I know that they had a significant influence on in certain cities, not, I don't think everywhere, but, and I don't know what, what that's like now. It's certainly, ne I've never encountered it. I was working for a fortune 250 company where this happened. This was not, this was not some you know, illicit operation. This was a publicly traded company, but still these things happen inside of, well, they happen everywhere or they can happen everywhere. I'm not saying that they happen everywhere. And, you know, at the time, you know, looking back on it, it's always interesting. Like, would, you know, what would the circumstances have had to have been for me not to have ended up on that path? And I, you know, ultimately it comes down, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a grown person. I was 24 years old or 23 years old. So I was a young person, but I was a grown person. I just got, as I reflect on it, I made all the choices. I just feel like I was influenced by other people, but I clouded my judgment a bit, even though I shouldn't have, because I wanted to do good. And I thought that if I did what we were talking about and what we were agreeing to. And these guys were older and more successful. And I thought, well, let's just follow this along because it must be at least halfway okay, even if it didn't feel okay. I just let my judgment go to the side there for a while, about a year uh, or so. That's what happens. I also would love to know what the public doesn't know about that industry. Well, if you worked in waste I mean, management pretty much your whole career. Yeah. Like a lot of industries, the waste industry is a phenomenal industry, but it, and it's very niched, you know, so you can be, there are so many components to the waste industry that the normal person would have no reason to ever know about. Like, for example, you know, our companies have always worked with industry. We've always worked with, you know, factories or factory waste and almost all the things we do, you would never encounter in your day-to-day -day life. And it's way, way different than putting the cans out trash day. So why would anybody, you know, know anything about that unless they operated a business or worked in a, you know, in a role inside of a business that, that handled that. And so it's just a very niche business that I think most people, what they know about waste is trash. That's because they all experience that. And if you live in the country, you might get a septic, your septic tank pumped. And so, you know, a little bit about that, but otherwise it's like, you put it down the drain, it goes away, you put the trash cans out and then you come home and they're empty. And that's about all you need to know. Did you ever find anything interesting, unexpected in the trash? 
I don't know if interesting or not. I will tell you that our first apartment, so I was in the trash division at, at the beginning before I moved to the industrial division. We had a number of appliances like a microwave and a vacuum cleaner that I had, um, that had come in the trash that were in good shape at our first place. That's what we, we repurposed. See, before repurposing was something that everybody wanted to do. We were repurposing way, way back. And the microwave had like a little kind of weird odor to it when it ran, but the food was fine. I love that. Did you ever like Craigslist anything? I mean, when people are moving, God, they get rid of so many things. I mean, we just moved. So I know that. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, I don't think Craigslist was around back then. So I'm, I know I'm dating myself um, today. I think today there's, well, it probably still happens, but there's probably a lot stricter policy on, you can't take stuff and take it home, but maybe, I don't know, maybe not. I haven't dealt with, with trash for a really long time. So maybe that is something that still happens. Kind of hard, right? If you see something that looks like it's good and you need it and you want it, I mean, throwing it out anyway, right? That's the rationale. So maybe I'll take it. So maybe that still happens. Plus, like in some cities, like you only can get rid of large items like one day every two oh, months. Sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah how yeah. many people have accepted bribes? Please take my stuff. <laughs> right. Like it well, happens. Yeah. I guess I, we don't have a limit on what we can. Well, maybe you can at my house, you don't have a limit on what you can put out, but whenever I put out a lot, I put a 20 bucks in a little, you know, plastic Ziploc because, you know, I, I know I'm taking up more room on the truck than they probably anticipated. And so, and I'm grateful that they'll take it all too. I don't know. I don't think that's a, I don't, I, that's just a reward. I don't think that's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but that's what I do. Yeah. I think my dad's done that too. That's yeah. generous of you. Oh, those guys work hard and I appreciate what they're doing. Also, I am kind of curious, like how much does a truck driver make? I, That's probably I, dependent upon city as well. Yeah, it's dependent upon city, depending upon what what type of job you have, union, non-union. But you know, our guys, you know, with overtime, they make eighty thousand a year or something like that. It's not bad if you like truck driving. If you like doing that kind of work, it's very rewarding work. I find because it's professional. It's you're doing something meaningful. Uh, you're making a difference and there's a lot of responsibility to it as well. So it's checks a lot of boxes for someone that, you know, wants, wants to do that kind of thing. Did you ever find any bodies? I've never found a body. No, <laughs> I have not. No, I have never, found a, I've never found a body or a body part only in the movies. I've seen it in the movies. I've seen it, but I've never experienced that. No, thankfully. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I mean, you've been in waste management a long time, so I'm glad you've never come across that. Yeah, I've never. Yeah. I was like wondering, I'm like, you see these things in the movies. Maybe it's happened. How did you get into waste management? Was your father in the industry? No, I got into it because I, I wanted to drive a truck. Mm. And so when I was in college, I was driving a truck delivering fencing material. And I did that for a summer. And then I didn't, I didn't want to do the fencing thing anymore, but I wanted to do some other type of driving. And I doing that job, I had noticed a lot of trash trucks and garbage trucks that were all over the place and it looked pretty cool to me. So I thought I would try to get a job doing that. So I went around during spring break and I knocked on seven or eight doors and one, you know, one gave me a road test and that I fortunately fortunately passed. And then they gave me a job for the summer. So it was simple as that. And I had no I had no idea about that industry or anything. I just thought the trucks were cool. And so I started doing that. And during that summer, I, that was between my junior and senior year. I thought this is a pretty neat business. You know, I like the people it's good work. There's good money to be made. We're doing something meaningful. Maybe this is something I could, it's got trucks and you know, and I love trucks. So maybe it's something I could do. And that's, that's how I got started in it. Did you like playing with trucks as a kid? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a big part of my life for a long time. I just started as a kid. We had a construction company across the street. So I loved watching those guys come and go. And I just thought, you know, I all going through grade school and stuff, I would draw trucks with my name on it in my notepad, notebooks and stuff. And it's just something that always interests me. And then, yeah, when it came time to, to get a, get a summer job in college, I, I didn't apply for the fence to drive the fencing company truck. It was just my buddy, his brother was a foreman there and he got us jobs and then they needed somebody to drive the truck. And so I said, sure. Cause my, my friend actually got offered first by his brother, but he didn't want to do it. And so I, I did it. And that's how that was my first. Well, I worked at the cemetery, the local, the, the parish cemetery and got to drive some trucks and equipment there during high school. So that was my first experience actually operating something. And then it kind of went on from there. Interesting. I've owned or had, you know, hundreds of trucks and trailers of all kinds now. And so now I like them less now than I used to because they're great. I think they're pretty to look at. And when they're working, they're awesome. You know, they're awesome money makers and stuff. But when I walk through the shop and see, you know, what happens to them and, you know, all the costs associated with repairing them and keeping them up, I'm less enthused about it. Oh yeah. They're expensive. Yeah. They're, they're very expensive. Yeah. So talk to me about the owner shift. How have you shifted from loving trucks and working in waste management to now yeah. being an entrepreneur? The book's all about, you know, pivot is a very popular word now, but I don't think that pivot really explains what happens to most people. I don't think most people pivot. And I think pivot's actually a bad word, like a word that doesn't actually express what what's happening. I've chosen instead to call my experience and what I think most entrepreneurs' experiences are as they grow, or leaders for that matter, is this shift. You know, you you make shifts depending on what's happening in the environment, in your career, in your customer's life, in your financing or your employees or whatever, you make shifts. So, and, and you do those to, you know, you need to do those in order to keep growing and, and keep maximizing your capability and all the capability around you. And so for me, as I described earlier, I had this sort of first 10 years of, of my first business. I just had this mentality that you know, I can do it all on my own and you know, I'll just outwork you. Basically, I'll just outwork you. And that was my game plan. So I didn't shift at all. I just did that. And I did it up until it wouldn't work anymore. Like I was doing the same things and I was becoming less happy and I was becoming probably less effective. And my mind wasn't focused on the future. It was focused on the past. And I just had all these issues. And, and it was because I wasn't shifting appropriately. Like I was running the business. It was a, probably a $10 million business at that time. And I was running it like it was, you know, just a startup right out of the gate still. So I needed to shift my thinking. I needed to grow my capabilities. I needed to understand how to run something like this. And so all of that caused shifts in my thinking and my actions and what I was investing myself in and what I was doing versus not doing. Now, I think shifting is so important because without it, I think you're likely to end up in a place where you don't feel like you've done your best. I think you're going to end up in a place where you are way less happy and successful than you thought you should be or wished you should be or maybe should be. I like to, you know, talk to people about that now. I like to help them work work through that. I find that most people underestimate what they're capable of. And I think that usually kept, keeps them stuck somewhere that they don't want to be, but they don't know how to shift out of it. So that's, that's how I explain it. I cannot imagine not shifting for 10 years. You have to have shifted some. Well, maybe I only want to remember what I want to remember, you know, so, so maybe, 
and probably there were subtle shifts, but not, I don't think that I was making the right shifts. If so, if you want to challenge me on that, I would say maybe you're right, but I'm certainly wasn't making the right shifts. Now they're more intentional and now they're more frequent. Yeah. Well, intentionality is, I think is a great word for it. uh, For sure. You, you have to know where you want to go in order to have a chance of getting there. And I find that for me, and I think for a lot of people that I work with and that I know it's hard work to keep focused on what you want your future to be and then work towards it. It's much easier to ignore that, which I think is the work of the leader. That's the hard work of the leader. You ignore that. And instead you wrap yourself up in day to day, you wrap yourself up in minutia, you wrap yourself up in activity, and then you go, wow, why am I not getting where I want to be? But you feel like you're you know, running on a treadmill, you feel like you're just giving it all you have. You're just avoiding a lot of times you're just avoiding what you should be doing. I don't want to seem like I know what you should be doing, but I think in a lot of cases you're ignoring what you, what your real job is, is to, you know, if you're the leader or you're the entrepreneur running a company, you're the person who's creating the future for your team. So you better be working on creating it, knowing what you want it to be because they're otherwise it's not, it's not very likely to happen. What did you learn from your parents? I feel like I was raised really well. I was raised to work hard. I was raised to be truthful. I was raised to do the right thing. I was given opportunities that my parents didn't have, and I was expected to make something out of them. But my parents were also not, they weren't up in my grill all the time, Rena, about you should do this, you shouldn't do this, you should do this, you should become this. They really let me and my sisters develop on our own, but with, you know, a really great encouragement and support network. So I had every, I mean, I had everything that I needed to be the person that I've become despite having my share of falling off the wagon-ish type events. But you know, I have a lot of respect for my parents because, you know, they always say you're a product of your parents and you're, you know, it's just something you can't ever get away from. I don't know if that's true or not, but my parents certainly, you know, weren't raised in a family with super high expectations for them to you know, that didn't have, I think, a lot of good role models for for parenting or for, for life for that matter. And yet the two of them found each other, got together however they did, and, and they made it work. And uh, I give them a lot of credit for that. Have you witnessed them figuring out how to shift? Probably not in the way that I'm, that I'm thinking about it, because I'm thinking about it from a, you know, they basically were employed by others their, their whole lives. And so I don't think that shifting... I don't think that they had the privilege of being able to think about shifting like I have and like a lot of people who are, you know, say running their own businesses or leading their own business. You have more freedom, I think, to to think about shifting. You're not under, you have some autonomy in your life. And when you're working for someone else, you, in the types of jobs that they've, they had at least, I mean, you, you know, you show up when they tell you to show up and you do what, what needs to be done. And I mean, I did experience my dad he's been gone for a long time now, but he made an effort to shift, you know, out of what he had been doing and into more of a management type role. And it just didn't work out for him. And I don't know why he's very private too. So like, like I was, we didn't like sit down and have a heart to heart about it, but I do remember him making an effort towards it. And then he went back to driving a truck. So he gave it an effort, at least the way I remember it. Okay. So he loved trucks too. Yeah. Well, he drove them for a long time. Yeah. So you made an impression there. Yeah. Is there anything that you remember that he used to say a lot? Is there anything that comes to mind? Did you have any daddy wisdom lines? I wish I could say yes, because from what I've heard you talk about your dad, he's 
got those. I I'd say, I don't remember anything. Mm. He was just very, he's a lot like me. He was just a very quiet sort of, I don't want a lot of attention sort of things, supportive, but not, he wasn't a philosopher. Do you think he figured out anything towards the end of his life? When you say figure out anything, what, what do you mean? Maybe did his beliefs shift or, you know, what was the, I don't know. Did you have any special conversations? No, unfortunately. So, so what ended up happening there is I lived far away Mm -hmm. from where I grew up and my dad for, I don't know, maybe two years or three years before I even knew about it, he had been diagnosed with cancer and he was going through treatment, but he would not talk to anybody about it. And he made my mom promise not to talk to anybody about it. So until he was in the hospital near the end and had to go to hospice, I didn't even know that he was sick. So the last few years of his life was really dealing with, with that, you know, he worked through it until he couldn't work. And then, so it was just, and my sisters didn't know either. It was just, yeah, until you couldn't hide it anymore. So by that time, so I missed the opportunity because by that time he was medicated and he was in a lot of pain. He was, he just wasn't in a, in a conversational, That's <laughs> he hard. wasn't able to have a great conversation at that point. Yeah. Is there anything that you wish you could have asked him or do you ever think about like advice he gave you now? When I think of him, I think of a good man and I try to, and I'm grateful that I had as much time as I did around him because I think it made me a decent man. That's beautiful. I was just thinking about my dad this morning because I was running late and dropping off the kids. And I told my kids, I was like, do you know how many times I was late in elementary school because my dad dropped me off? And every single day that my dad would drop me off, he would say, run right in. They might not mark you late. I'm like, dad, they literally mark me late every day. (laughs) But my kids got a kick out of that, you know? Yeah, yeah. What was the problem there getting you to school on time? I went to a school across town. I went to a private school and my dad was just not someone who cared about being on time, you know? He was very relaxed and had a nice breakfast and I didn't get up quickly, you know, and okay, yeah, we're not morning people. And I guess (laughs) not morning morning people. And you would not make it as a trash man. You got to be, no, I would not make it as a trash man. Yeah. yeah. And you know, what's interesting when I worked in Hollywood, I even took a third shift job as post-production supervisor on nanny nine one one. I did well from seven at night till 2 a.m. Okay. So that's your sweet spot. All right. <laughs> I guess you're a morning person, huh? Well, less now than I needed to be before, before, but I am when I have to be. Even I was talking about it with my kids this morning and I was like, I think it probably affected my grades in some of my classes. And they're like, yeah, that's not good. Like my kids are so much more responsible than me. There is something to being there a little bit beforehand, even with this podcast interview you were like prompt like right you know not a minute late and I respect people that can be like that but as an entrepreneur part of why I love being an entrepreneur is because I don't have to book anything until 10 11 12 o'clock you know right and which is great it's nice to have a a life with that kind of freedom but you know when it's time for you to be there you're there yeah I think that's important too for me it's important it says something about me that I care about you I agree. Are there any other shifts you're making in your life right now? I mean, yeah, the, the whole, this whole um, past couple of years, not due to COVID, just because sold a couple of businesses now. And so I've got the podcast and I wrote the book and then, you know, I'm doing some coaching and have a lot of investments and I have a new business. And so I'm, I'm shifting 
right now I, I'm, I'm in the process of shifting toward how I can make a bigger impact on more people. And I don't want to, it's not branding and I'm not that concerned about branding. I'm just concerned about impact. Like, so with my podcast, for example, I've done 300 and some episodes, which, you know, is more than most, but there's a lot of people who've done more than that. But what's more important to me now is like, I'm thinking to myself, should I make a shift in my podcast? Is my podcast really making a difference to the number of people that I want to be making a difference toward? And if it isn't, is it because of the way it is? Is it because of me? Is it because of the format? Is it because of the topics? Is that sort of a shift where I've got I've got myself parked in right now is how do I, I'm evaluating that. So it was a really significant shift for me to start it to begin with, because it's not something that came naturally to me. And as I mentioned, it was something I did just really out of selfishness to get my curiosity sort of going and to learn stuff. But now I want it to be more than just about me, right? So my curiosity, my so I love sharing the stories. I love meeting the people. I love learning from everybody. And I'm just trying to figure out how to do it better and more impactfully as I go along. So that's one example. Well, first of all, congratulations. The 300 is a lot of episodes and that's amazing. And most people, Thanks. I feel like, don't make it that far. Yeah, I think most people don't make it that far. But I usually find that the ones who, maybe this is your experience. I find that the ones who do or do anything, who didn't start off, famous, they put a lot of years into it. So life is about years of thinking, effort and contribution, I feel like. And I've, so I've got years now and now it's time to reflect, you know, is it, should I, is it just more of the same or what do I have to do to achieve my goal? That's a shift that I'm parked in right now. I think my dad will have something to say about that. Is there anything you want to ask him? So a couple of things. One, I, it would just be kind of cool to meet him because you, you have a, just a really unique and I think endearing relationship with your dad and how you, how you incorporate him into your podcast is really cool. I know he had an experience similar, maybe not the same as mine. So it'd be interesting to explore how he navigated his way through that. I would like to know why being on time isn't important to him because that sort of strikes me as strange for someone who's had success, you know, a lot of success. So I'll stop there. You might actually give me pushback on that. <laughs> but oh, 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 I see. So you have the poetic record. license with the well, you <laughs> of have, how many tardies I you got. Do. Okay. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> it was in well, the hundreds. So you have the proof. All right. She's got the proof. <laughs> I love that question though, but I will say, you know, he ran a factory with his parents for 40 plus years. And I guess when you're the boss man, you can roll in not exactly on time, right? But what does that look like to your workers? And maybe- Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. So you can do anything you want. The question is, are you doing the things that you want other people to do? Or Ooh. are you, right? I mean, you can do anything you want. Like, you know, it reminds me of like people who like, and this may be a bad example, but people who say, you know, be honest, do what you're supposed to do and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then their whole business is taking cash that they don't report. Everybody knows it. So how do you expect anybody to be? It's like, you can't live life in a dichotomy like that, right? You either have to, you have to have the model what you want or, or be okay with the fact that you're asking people to do something you won't do yourself, which I find to be a bit insulting. Yeah. There was a guest For on me. my show too, Brendan, and I'll totally butcher his last name, but he's has a YouTube channel called master talk. 
And he uh-huh. says, the way you show up in one area of your life is how you show up in all areas of your life. Right. Yeah. That's yep. a tough reality to swallow sometimes. That's a tough reality. It's a very tough reality to hold yourself to the same standard that you, that you without question hold other people to. I mean, just think about that in your life. People, whether they're, there are some people who have a mentality that everybody else is wrong, but they never are because they don't put a lens on themselves like they put on other people. And they, because that's, that would be really scary. So instead they just sort of try to up their status by talking about how other people are, you know, sort of not meeting the grade. And I really think, I just think it's very easy, but not very helpful to, you know, have that approach to life. And I feel like the vast majority of people have that approach. I don't want to be that person. I want to be a person that, you know, what you see is what you get and what you see is what I expect from you. And that's that. Yeah. I appreciate that shift. Yeah. Okay. Well, let people know how they can buy your book, find your podcast and connect with you. Sure. Well, best way to get in touch with me is at my website, which is my name. It's just Mike Malatesta, M-A-L-A-T-E-S-T-A.com. Everything's there. My podcast, my book, my coaching stuff just about me, my blog. You can sign up for my newsletter there, which I have a lot of fun doing. That comes out once a week on Thursday. LinkedIn, you can connect with me there, just my name. And Amazon, you can, of course, buy the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble or whatever. And subscribe to my podcast, How That Happened, on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever podcasts are. You can find it there, wherever you like to listen. Mike, it has been an absolute pleasure. I will tell you one way to, I think, make a bigger impact and to grow your podcast is to, like we started the podcast, you know, see which guests have been on my show that you might like, keep the conversation going. I have found recently that even when I send my guest the promo clip or the graphic or the links to their episode, I always say like, you were an awesome guest. Who do you think would be good for my show? Like, let's keep the conversation going. I also have a Facebook group called Business Laughs and LinkedIn. If you're on Facebook, come hang out there. On Fridays, I say promote anything. So you can promote your podcast. You can promote a shift that you're making. You can see what other people in my group are up to. Okay. I think supporting the guests that have been on your show, see what other shows they're on. I really try to make the podcast just an introduction to the relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a good point. I like that approach. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. And um, interested to see what your dad has to say. Yay, me too. All right, All have right, a great thanks, rest Rena. of your day, Mike. Okay, you too. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. All right. He had a couple of questions for you. Okay, shoot. The first one was, did you want to talk a little bit about your experience that you had with the EPA? The thing that we had going on originated in Louisville, and then it really carried over to New Albany. We've been targeted for even more than the seven years or eight or nine years that we were in New Albany at the time. The funny part is, is that being in waste management, being in manufacturing, the EPA oversight over the environment is so impractical and unscientific that it's not even funny. So they don't use good science, they don't use good logic, and they are really expanded their rules and tightened their rules to absurdity. 
it's been relaxed a little bit once the Republicans got back into office. But the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, it's really quite ironic because to hold certain standards, which is what comes up in this interview, is what you want to do for others. And other countries should all be on board doing the same thing. It's got to make sense. It's got to be logical. It's got to be economically feasible. Otherwise, you you destroy your business or you destroy your country. Mr. Biden wants to get rid of fossil fuels and coal and oil. He would rather starve all the people in the world. He would rather have people in a depression because he's on a kick of clean energy that you know takes time to even do. It's, it's got to make economic sense as well. So my experience with the FBI and the EPA, it was quite a long ordeal because it went on while we were in Louisville. And then when we came over to New Albany, when they tried to put a case against us, it went on for seven or eight years because the irony is that the New Albany sewer system was outdated and the stormwater system was hooked up to the regular sewer system. And they were having all kinds of issues where the government had sued them. So they needed a scapegoat. And why not make make me the scapegoat? So the funny part is, is that it's not even a matter of right and wrong. Some of it is just political. My advice would have been to him if he would have asked me is that when the FBI says you got nothing to hide, that's already a cue card that they're coming after you. So you have to have a lawyer and you got to keep your mouth shut. and You got to know exactly what you're saying, because what you're doing is building up a case against yourself. The FBI is not your friend and they're just as corrupt as any other political system that we have in this country. And unfortunately, there are good people, but there are just as many bad people that have been policemen and FBI agents and EPA agents and government agents and politicians. So it's really a matter of protecting yourself is really the issue because the facts can be twisted and turned to whatever your point of view might be, is what I've learned anyway. Sounds like you can relate. I can relate. What's interesting is that here's a quiet man that was trying to think that if he cooperated with the FBI, that things would go away. They would say it's a mistake. And the fact is, is it might have been a mistake. But what he didn't realize is that the questions and the twisting and the turning made it a case. So he actually was really making, helping the FBI make a case against not only his company, but even against himself, which is not very good advice. And it's not really fair uh, playing field when an FBI agent really is questioning you. They're not really looking for your help. They're really looking to hang you. I would say that was not in his best interest. What's interesting, he's a quiet man. He did like trucks just like his dad. And his dad wanted to play low key. And he likes to play low key. So that's how you avoid getting into trouble, you would think. And not to take on other people's issues or problems. But the fact is, is that he's experienced working as running a company in the millions of dollars. And you have no choice but to be a leader. You're thrusted into that position. And I think even in my own case, because we also had reached just about $10 million in sales as well. I told you what the philosophy that was handed down to me is that you want to be genuine. You want to set an example of what you're doing with your life as a format for the people that work around you. And he's learned that same lesson. He wants to be genuine. He wants to help people get out of situations because he suffered a great situation just like I have a very similar situation. And the funny part is, is that I think we had a great case against the government and the city, but they were always going to win because they're more powerful than you are. They can wait it out longer. They can stretch it out 
where just when you think that things are a little easier, as he said, and he felt less strain, he thought that whole thing would go away. And all they're doing is prying and digging and digging and keeping you in pain until you settle or you give in. And that's, is that really justice? Plus, the paying a fine, in our case, was less than all the lawyer fees and what the court costs would have continued to be. So the funny part is, is that giving in to them was actually cheaper than fighting them. So it became just a business decision in our case. Did we really get justice? Did the city, did the town really get justice? Did the environment really get justice? The answer is an emphatic no. That's what's so funny about this whole thing. Is everybody thinks that there's got to be justice that has to be rendered. And sometimes these cases are not anything about justice at all. How's that for life? How's that for life? <laughs> but look at how it made him a stronger person. It's made me a stronger person. And where you don't want to see other people taken advantage of. So he's running that podcast, just like you're running that podcast, The Better Call Daddy Show, where you can share genuine experiences. You can share issues that are valuable to anybody that listens. It's a way to communicate and be able to gain knowledge and wisdom yourself and to share that with your audience. And that's what Mike is doing also. I think that that's what helps even people come out of their shell. It's really just a wonderful thing. And he's able to do that. You know, we call it pivot into doing different things in your life. And I like his new terminology. It's called learning how to shift at what you're doing. You don't necessarily have to change what you're doing, but sometimes you have to shift your ideas to be able to do it better, okay? And to take things into consideration of how things can be improved. And sometimes you don't have to give up what you're in, but you have to be able to at least shift your ideas to incorporate new variables so that you have a chance, whatever the entity is, to be more successful. So I did like that new terminology of you've got to also learn how to shift at what you're doing as well. Not just pivot, but to be able to shift your thinking. You think you can shift your thinking around getting me to school on time? <laughs> you see, you brought up about being late. What I was bringing that up as an example is that if a person can't show up to an interview or to a job the first day on time, you're already getting a taste of the future, that this is a person that you're just not going to be able to count on if they can't even show up on the most important day, which is the first day. But when it comes to being late or being out, it's not as important. Things happen. But on the very first day, you should be giving your best impression because first impressions are very meaningful. And if you're disrespectful or you're a wise guy or you're late or you're obnoxious the very first time you go out on a date, not too many girls want to see you the second time around. So if you want to be in the dance, you better be on your best behavior, especially the first day. And then it goes to hell from there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said it, but I, cause I just thought it because it sure can go to hell after that. But at least you're in the game if you make a good first impression. But that's not the whole answer. Look, you have a guy that has opened up a company where being generous and being nice and going to bed with corrupt politicians and paying them off or being a, a good guy and donating, whether it's made off of this new fella that ran FTX, where all he was doing was running a billions of dollars of, of a scam. So to donate 50 million here or 40 million there or 100 million there means nothing, where he's trying to set a good example. But still, like you say, you can still go to hell from there. He still is one of the all-time biggest crooks 
in history where you think that after seeing a huge crook get caught, that how dare someone else try to pull the same type of scam five or 10 years later, the billions and billions of dollars. supposed to show you that when you're nice to people and you do nice things, sometimes people even take advantage of being nice only to be, like you say, all hell is about to break loose. Somebody puts their arm around you and tells you, hey, brother, or hey, buddy, I'm, I've got your back. Just watch out that he doesn't have a knife that he's sticking in your back. And unfortunately, sometimes that's the FBI for you. They're not there to relieve your liability. They're only there to see if they can give you liability. They're only there to attack you. They're not there to comfort you or to uh, tell you that it's really okay and it's a mistake. Hopefully that's a good lesson for us all. Say hi to the FBI. <laughs> Just make sure you don't end up with a black eye. thanks for listening to the better call daddy show now you can subscribe on apple podcasts google play spotify iHeartRadio, and tune in if you've enjoyed this episode of the better call daddy show please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash better call daddy at better call daddy podcast on ig at rena friedman watts on linkedin.com 